Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, U.S. equity indices are very close to reattaining the all-time high levels as global trade tensions recede, at least temporarily. To get a sense of where we move to next or we go to next with the markets, we welcome Christina Hooper. Christina is Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. She joins us live uh, from the Phoenix Convention Center at the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for being with us. It really does appear that certainly one of the main drivers for investors sentiment is trade is that your sense absolutely and what i would say more specifically economic policy uncertainty created by the current tariff situation and the threats of more tariffs so right now we're looking at markets that are broadly expecting rate cuts and i, I put that in plural uh before the end of this year pimco came out and said that there could be a 50 basis point rate cut in July if economic conditions deteriorate. Do you agree with that assessment? I think that is extremely unlikely. I think the Fed wants to certainly be very careful and thoughtful about any rate cuts it makes. And so what we're more likely to see is communication around standing ready to ease. But I would be very, very surprised to see a 50 basis point rate cut in one fell swoop. So I guess, Christina, one of the things that Lisa and I discuss back and forth is, you know, what does or what do multiple rate cuts tell us? Does it really suggest that this economy perhaps is weaker than maybe the markets are discounting? Well, it really all depends on how the Fed frames this, because keep in mind, we've heard a lot of chatter from Fed members over the last several months around inflation targeting and the idea that we could potentially see the Fed changing its inflation target, raising it, so to speak. Um, that would mean that essentially the Fed could cut rates without any change in economic conditions. And it would be a really easy way to ease without causing alarm. So if the Fed does not cut rates, what happens to equity markets? If the Fed does not cut rates, it's all about the language. It's all about what we see in the announcement. If they take out the patient language, I think that will matter a lot to markets and won't cause any kind of sell-off. Um, because I don't know if we're going to see any rate cut in June, but it's all about the language and perhaps what we see in no, the dot plot. But I mean, for example, because right now markets, if you look at Fed Funds futures contracts, they are pricing in two and a half rate cuts by December. Let's say the Federal Reserve signals or just doesn't cut rates at all or cuts rates once. I mean, does that, does that spur a big sell-off? It all depends on how this plays out, really? right? Because right. we can see Fed Funds futures change quite rapidly. And so expectations might change by the end of the year. But let's assume in that scenario that Fed Funds expectations remain the same. Um, Fed Funds futures remain the same. In that kind of, kind of environment, we would likely see disappointment in markets, at least temporarily. So, Christina, one thing that I guess that Lisa and I are hearing more and more from economists and from strategists that, that appear on our show is the, you know, the expectation that 2020, maybe mid-2020, quite likely to see a recession. Is that something you think is reasonable? Well, we're certainly following it closely, but from our perspective where we stand today, we don't think um, that 
a recession is the base case for 2020. Now, a lot can happen between now and then, and some of it is certainly dependent upon uh, trade policy and where that goes. But it seems as though major central banks stand ready to provide accommodation. We've already seen financial conditions ease in just the last few weeks. And I would suggest that this is going to be an environment where, once again, uh, central banks step in and save the day. Uh, we could certainly see a deceleration in growth. Both. But at this stage, it seems unlikely that we actually see a recession by mid-2020. Christina, are you seeing your clients making big allocation shifts at this point? We are not. Um, clients understand, and what we stress is taking that long-term perspective. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't small tactical shifts, and I certainly think that what we're likely to see going forward is continued focus on a growth tilt within U.S. equities, and I'm hoping that we'll also see something of a tilt towards more income-producing asset classes, given that we're likely to be in a lower-for-longer environment. Are you talking high-yield bonds? Well, not necessarily necessarily high-yield bonds specifically, but an array of higher-yielding asset classes that would include high-yield bonds, um, munis, including higher-yielding munis, but also convertible bonds as well as dividend-paying stocks. Sometimes they get overlooked, and I think many of them have been overlooked in the recent rally. So, Christina, we are more than 10 years into this economic cycle. So as you, as you think about where you're allocating money in the equity markets, are there certain sectors that just given where we are in this cycle, appeal more to you than some others? Well, we see this cycle uh, continuing, although, of course, decelerating. And so that would suggest uh, an overweighting towards the growth style in this kind of environment. And so I would favor technology and, to a certain extent, healthcare names uh, as being quite attractive. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there aren't headwinds for those sectors. In particular, tech is likely to face more regulation. But this is more of um, uh, you know, a, a two-year to three-year outlook. Um, and right now, tech looks attractive despite some of the headwinds we could see. So I just am curious, given the fact that you're bullish on risk assets over the near to long term, or certainly the, even the near term, do you think that treasury yields are too low? Ten-year yields right now, 2.1%. And if so, how much could they rise? Well, treasury yields um, are definitely low uh, relative to where they have been. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that's going to change. And what it does mean, though, is that it makes equities look more attractive. It makes dividend-paying stocks look more attractive. So I think we could continue in this situation for a while um, because I think the bond market is accurately reflecting the fear in the market that we're not seeing being reflected in stocks. Christina, has the global trade tensions, I guess the escalation of some trade tensions, has that caused you guys to rethink maybe your allocation to emerging markets? Is it just too risky to, to maybe be a little bit too aggressive there? Well, what it's encouraging us to do and what we've, what we've been uh, advocating for some time is to be very discerning in emerging markets. There's no reason to change your overall weighting to emerging markets, but it's important to be selective within emerging markets, focusing on those areas that are actually benefiting um, from what's going on in, in uh, the larger macro environment, including trade wars, as well as the Fed turning more accommodative. Uh, so I would favor, in general, Asia EM in this environment. Christina Hooper, thank you so much, as always, for being with us. We love getting your insights. Uh, Christina Hooper is Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, which oversees nearly a trillion dollars.
Facebook uncovered emails that may indicate that Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg uh, knew of, quote, questionable privacy practices. This uh, comes as scrutiny continues to mount uh, with respect to big tech and their privacy, as well as just uh, their size issues, their dominance of different markets. Uh, this is definitely one of the focuses here at the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference 2019, especially given the fact uh, that big tech has accounted for a good proportion of the incredible rally that we've seen in U.S. equities over the past few years. Joining me here on site, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Investors, uh, overseeing about $500 billion uh, in assets. You are going to be on a panel, delayed gratification. Uh, Are we going to see delayed gratification for all of the naysayers of big tech? How much do the rising uh, issues of regulation around big tech cloud your view or affect your view uh, when it comes to how to allocate to tech shares? I I think we could have some chop this summer, and certainly this technology issue that has just popped up on the wires uh, could certainly contribute to that. You look at uh, sort of the, the political environment that's going on in Washington right now. You're hearing a lot of populism in terms of Technology is getting too big. It's unregulated. We need to break them up, put some more laws in place. Uh, and then you, you think about the fact that we've got the Democratic primaries coming up. I think the right at the end of this month, uh, I'm absolutely positive this will be a topic of discussion in terms of the Q&A with the candidates and the and the moderators. So the, the, uh, the noise, the furor, the headline risk associated with this issue is likely to get bigger rather than smaller uh, over the next couple of months. Now, our view is maybe the, you know, the market uh, uh, could could have some chop over the uh, over the summer months, and and you know the technology issue could certainly be one of the issues that contributes to that chop. So, Phil, one of the things that's clearly been uh, you know impacting uh, markets over the last several months is trade concerns. First with China, uh, and then with Mexico, and of course. Uh, the Mexico trade issues very tightly tied to immigration uh, and how that should evolve. I know you recently put out a note on how you think uh, immigration uh, uh, rules should be amended. Give us your thoughts on that. So the immigration issue is is been a hot button issue for me for a couple of years now, and and. Uh, the note that I just put out this week uh, looks at a couple of the big macro issues. On the one hand. We just got the JOLTS report on Monday. The JOLTS report is pretty good. We've seven and a half million new jobs. We've got more new jobs that we're creating in this country than we've got unemployed people on the sidelines that could possibly fill them. All right. So that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, on the other hand, our, for, our organic fertility in this country is at a cyclical trough. Our, our women are, are only having an average of 1.7 children per woman. That That's half of what the rate of fertility was when I was born in the 50s. I love the clinical terms for this, the organic fertility rate. <laughs> People having babies, go on, yeah. And, and we understand what's going on. Women are focused more on their careers and their education. And, and with a trillion and a half dollars of student loan debt, couples, I think, are making a conscious decision to have smaller families rather than larger families. It's expensive. Absolutely. Have you put your kids in, in daycare? Uh, I you know my kids, my youngest is a junior at Penn State right now. So I'm, I'm well past kind of we are. Daycare. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, so the point is that that we're we're producing less kids 
and yet the labor market is strong enough that we need more workers. Well, the solution, the way to bridge that gap is having an intelligent immigration policy. And, and intelligent is sort of the key word here uh, that is an oxymoron when, when referring to our leaders in Washington right now. They can't get out of their way. There's like the Keystone Cops trying to solve what should be a slam dunk issue in terms of making sure that we've got enough qualified workers coming in from, from outside of the country in order to fill these jobs. So I think it's a legitimate question. It's one that, that's been bothering me I, I, so much so that I probably write about it every six months. You know, so it, uh, and so I wrote about it this week. So uh, aside from fertility issues, and this is actually a very important one. I don't mean to diminish it. I mean, it's one of the major drivers that people point to in Japan and why that, that economy Absolutely. is stagnant. Absolutely. Um, but I want to shift to one other area that's stagnant, and that is uh, U.S. inflation. It does not appear to be going up, and we are seeing uh, markets price in increasingly. Uh, the Federal Reserve will cut rates next week yeah. and certainly thereafter. Do you think that's the right call? I, inflation is benign. There's no question. The core personal consumption expenditure index, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, is sitting at 1.6% as of the latest reading. Then we got a CPI number this morning. I think the core PCE, the core CPI year over year came down 2% even. Is that right, Lisa? Yeah, so, uh, it was uh, core, well, I'll, I'll look it up exactly. I, I think it was 2%. Now, the spread, the relationship between the PCE and the CPI tends to be about a half a percent. So that's consistent yes, with... Yes, it was 2%. Okay, that's consistent with the 1.6 PCE numbers we all Now, the, the market, I think, has built up in its mind that, that inflation is too low and that the Fed is going to ride to the rescue at next week's FOMC meeting and start a rate-cutting cycle. We disagree with that. And I think if, if, if we're right that the Fed is not going to start cutting rates next week, that, that could represent some disappointment for the market because the market has rallied pretty strongly here over the last couple of weeks. And there are a couple of issues. So issue number one is that inflation, I don't think is a problem. I think it's benign, but I don't think we're risking a deflation or a disinflationary sort of an environment. Point number two, we've got the G20 meeting uh, coming up in Osaka, Japan at the end of the month. That's a very important meeting because we're expecting that she and Trump are going to get together uh, and, and you know, shake hands and, and have a nice conversation, much like they did in Buenos Aires last year. And what that will do is not create a deal, but uh, allow the, the, the beginning of a series of conversations between our minions and their minions to, I think, get a, a trade deal back on track, uh, let's say, by Thanksgiving. Uh, and then the third issue is that, that, and I wrote about this last week, the, the, the jobs number right. we saw last Friday was terrible. And everyone's freaking out that we're going into recession. And I don't think that's the case. I think we had a bad number. I think it's an aberrant number. And I think the Fed would be prudent to wait for another jobs report or two before they, they, they change policy dramatically. Yep. So my best guess is uh, a cut from the Fed maybe at the July 31st meeting at the earliest, and I think the market may be disappointed next week. What right. the Fed should do next week is take the 2020 dot off the board and then give us some happy talk about needing to come in, right. wanting to come in if they need to later in the cycle. Very good. Phil Orlando, thank you so much for joining us. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management from Federated Investors.
Well, the prospect of the U.S. slapping tariffs on Mexican goods is off the table for now, but it does appear that President Trump's patience with Mexico hinges on what may be an undeliverable promise, and that is to reduce some of the stream of immigration uh, that the U.S. is seeing at its southern border. Here to explain uh, more about this is Josh Wingrove, a White House reporter joining us from Washington, D.C. Josh, can you give us a sense of how much President Trump is sort of watching the flow of migration at the border in order to gauge whether or not to ramp up the rhetoric here uh, with Mexico. I mean, he, he has indicated that it is all about that and that if those numbers don't go down, it was 133,000 apprehensions in May at the U.S.-Mexico border, then he's going to reserve the right to essentially do more, uh, including maybe unsuspend those tariff threats. And we seem primed to kind of come to a head on it again, because, of course, there's a lot of reasons that that number is so high. And even those close to the president say that it's not up. uh, There's no way that Mexico can do it on its own. There's a mix of factors. And uh, Trump supporters would say that those include uh, the need for changes in Congress. Refugee advocates would say it also includes addressing the root causes of the uh, unrest in Central America that's sending these migrants on the road in the first place. So, Josh, is there any expectation that the plans that Mexico has initiated in terms of sending troops to its southern border can meaningfully have an effect? Uh, yeah, I think most people think it would meaningfully have an effect. I spoke yesterday with uh, Barack Obama's former ambassador to Mexico, who thought it was a good framework. You know, as everyone thinks, I think, that this might be a good step. It's a question more of, is it enough to really cut down that number? 133,000 is more than triple the same month a year ago. And, and I guess time will tell. One wrinkle on this, though, is these numbers normally fall in the summertime. It's hot. People don't want to be you know, walking a long distance into the United States as much. So uh, if we do see those numbers drop, it could simply be, be, be because of seasonality. And then the question is, does Trump take credit for that and you know, call his plan a win and move on? Uh, and even if he does do that, when they start rising again traditionally in the fall, as one would expect, uh, does he get angry? Does he call up Mexico again and say you're not doing enough? So, Josh, the reason why markets are so focused on that, and that's certainly one of the questions here uh, at the BNY Mellon Pershing's Insight Conference 2019, where we are in Phoenix, uh, the reason why people are focused on this is because U.S. trade with Mexico is so fundamental to certain industries, in particular the auto industry. I'm just wondering how companies can even make plans right now. I mean, basically, uh, given that this all kind of hinges on a flow of migration here, what are the prospects for the USMCA to get passed and some sort of longer lasting deal to give people conviction at this point? Yeah, I mean, you you raise a great point. Let me try to deal with one by one. The scale of this is really difficult to overstate. Aside from China, the U.S. buys more goods from Mexico than any other country. A 5% tariff across the board would affect a ton of stuff. It would also affect a ton of stuff that crosses the border a bunch of times, like in auto production, as you mentioned. So that tariff could compound pretty quickly. And some of these companies, to get into the weeds a bit a bit, don't even have systems set up. Like the way they collect tariffs is its own, you know, a whole a gauntlet to run, you can imagine. And so if you've never been paying any, you, you, you don't even know where to begin. So the potential headache uh, for uh, exporters, importers, the economy is difficult to overstate. Uh, on the other side, uh, the president simply uh, likes tariffs. He believes that they are both an effective tool in negotiation, and he believes that they're an effective thing generally. So I don't think you can ever rule out the chance that he would do it. He does want that USMCA trade deal. A lot of analysts think it's very difficult 
difficult to imagine the Mexican government ratifying that deal, as they still have to do. Of course, Congress also needs to ratify it if those tariffs are in place. So maybe we'll see if Congress can move on in the summer. So, Josh, you mentioned that 130,000 number of uh, crossings uh, recently. Is there a number that the Trump administration would find acceptable? Um, is there something we should be looking for? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, they were we were down sort of in the 50,000 range just at the beginning of the year. I think if they got it back there, they'd be happy to claim victory. It's also noteworthy to say that this isn't the highest it's ever been. Uh, Diane Feinstein, a Democrat from uh, California, noted this in a hearing yesterday. It was around 1.6 million coming around, uh, across the border annually uh, in and around 2,000. Right now we're on pace for 900,000, maybe a million. So a high number, higher than in recent years, much higher than in recent years, still fairly well below the highs that the U.S. has seen in, uh, in the past. So I, I guess that I'm wondering, what are we looking for going forward in terms of some kind of guidance of the progress being made here? I think all eyes should be on, in July on that June number. Uh, the U.S. releases, CBP releases annual, or sorry, monthly, excuse me, monthly numbers of apprehensions at the border. If that June number is, you know, a fair bit lower than 133, that's probably a good sign. If it is higher, then, uh, you know, I think all eyes will be on the president to react. And if it is lower and we get through a summer and we don't hear much about this again, investors might want to look again back if that number starts rising in the fall. Traditionally, as I said, when fall, the weather gets a little more uh, reasonable, People, those numbers tend to rise again. Yeah, regardless of these measures, those numbers could rise again, in which case we could be back to square one. Josh Wingrove, thank you so much. Josh Wingrove is a White House reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, reporting from Washington, D.C. It is going to reach more than 105 degrees where we are, which is the Phoenix Convention Center at BNY Mellon Pershing Insights Conference for 2019. And one area of focus is the ongoing debate, man versus machine, at least that's how it's been cast, the rise of ETFs, the cannibalization of the active management industry. Joining us now to sort of give us some real talk on where we are in this evolution is Jeff McCarthy, Chief Executive Officer of ETFs, Exchange Traded Funds at BNY Mellon uh, here at, uh, uh, with us at the Phoenix Convention Center. So, Jeff, uh, let's start with just sort of a state of play. How much has money flowed out of active into passive into ETFs? How far are we in this evolution? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. So I think when you look at active funds, we've seen a continuous outflow over the last 10 years of these funds. Now, the trick is you've seen the active fund market grow largely because of capital appreciation, but they've had negative inflows. On the inverse, ETFs have had positive inflows year after year. This year, year to date, for the first four months of 2019, we've seen $86 billion flow into these products in the U.S. Last year, 314 2017, over 400 So it's definitely an asset class or a structure, I should say. I don't want to call it an asset class. That's gaining momentum and gaining investor flows. So, Jeff, is there any end in sight to this trend from your perspective? I think it's going to continue. And one of the things to look at is how big is the mutual fund market in the U.S.? It's, an over, it's over $20 trillion in assets. 
and the ETF market is just at $4 trillion. So there's a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of aspects that are uncovered, especially when you look at the defined benefit, defined contribution, the 401k universe. That's largely not penetrated by ETFs. And when ETFs make more headways into that area, I think you're going to see an asset growth pop in the ETF industry. So my impression is that in U.S. equities, ETFs have already gotten a substantial share. Is that is that correct? I mean, do ETFs count for a significant proportion of retail investments in, say, the S&P 500? Yeah, I mean, ETFs today, the market is 78% held in equity products, 16% in fixed income, right? And then the list goes down. So they're largely held as equity strategies, but I don't think, you know, the end is in sight. I think, you know, ETFs continue to be, especially on the passive strategy, a product of choice. I mean, institutional investors and retail investors use these products. And I think that's key to having a healthy investor access market. And 78% of investors by Greenwich Associates say that ETFs are their preferred vehicle for index strategies. And, and Jeff, is it, what, to what extent is it just the lower fees that are driving ETFs? What's, from your perspective, some of the key drivers here? Well, I think low fees is the number one, right? All investors, institutional retail, they're all price sensitive, right? And if you look at the flows into these products, 95% of the flows go into products with expense ratios at 20 basis points or less. But then 60% of those are in products at nine basis points and less. So there's really no reason why an investor should pay more than single digit from an expense ratio for a product to get broad exposure into the US market because ETFs are liquid, liquid, they are available, and they're transparent vehicles. Okay, so when you're talking to uh, prospective investors in ETFs, is, is the low fee kind of the key aspect? Because we've seen Fidelity, for example, have a negative, a negative fee uh, type of fund, right? That's been introduced to try to lure people in. Uh, we've seen cut, fees cut to zero. And at a certain point, uh, you have to wonder the viability of some of these, of these companies, the fund manager companies, and where they're actually getting their money. Are, are people paying in other ways? I mean, they are paying in other ways. Now, I'm never going to say, you know, Fidelity isn't going to be viable, right? It's a it's a powerhouse asset manager. And I think if you look at Fidelity's strategy, they have so much to offer investors. And so they'll offer investors products at zero, right? But to customers of Fidelity. Why? Because they bring them into the Fidelity family. They leverage and they cross-sell other products that are necessary for those investors. You have seen some ETFs come to market this year at zero or negative, right? Paying investors to invest. But you have to look at the fine details of those products, right? They have disclosures, meaning they're waiving their fee for the first year or until the fund gets to 100 million in assets. And then the expense ratio goes up to 19 basis points. So it's not necessarily free. And I think, you know, the broad lesson of the best things in life are never free. You should apply that to investing. And I think you have to look at the product, the characteristics, what is the investment objective? What is the components of the index? versus just the cost. But going back to my previous statement, investors are price sensitive and cost is a large factor into asset allocation selection. Jeff McCarthy, thank you so much. Jeff is the Chief Executive Officer of Exchange Traded Funds at BNY Mellon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.